Welcome to Resolving Reality, an independent Irish media platform. In this eighth video episode, I interview Dr. Bill Warner on the subject of political Islam. Visit Dr. Warner's website for more information on him and his work, politicalislam.com, and also check out his YouTube channel, and the links for those will be down below in the description. Don't forget to subscribe to this channel, Resolving Reality, and for all our other podcasts and platforms, visit our website, resolvingreality.com. Okay, yeah, Dr. Warner, uh, good morning to you and welcome to Resolving Reality. Looking forward to this. Great, thanks a lot for being here. Um, I've been, I've had you in mind for a while now because um, my, my brief of my uh, uh, alternative media website is to just provide a broad education on lots of topics. And of course, um, Islam or political Islam, should I say, is a, a rather big one that isn't uh, discussed by the mainstream media, which is where the likes of me kind of come into the picture. Um, so let's start with a slight foundation here, first of all. Um, how did you get into this topic? And I know you've answered this a million times, so you can as brief as you like, just to give an introduction, and we'll we'll go from there. I got in. I'm a 78 year old man, and I got into my study of Islam when I was 30 years old. So that was some time ago. I was interested in mystical Islam, Sufism, and so I read about that. Went to meetings and stuff, Sufi dances for about a year, and then drifted away. My second phase of learning came as a college professor. I had many Muslim students, and I believe if you're going to understand somebody, it helps to understand their religion. So I. So read, this time I'd read the Quran cover to cover and I then read the life of Muhammad. And so I realized, ooh, this is pretty intense material. So then on September 11, 2001, when I saw the second plane hit the second tower, I said, this is jihad, Islam is here. And in that moment, I knew that I wanted to devote my life to making the doctrine of Islam clear and easy to understand, which is sort of what I've been doing for the last few years. Mm -hmm. And of course, when, when you say Islam to people, they immediately think religion and they put it in the same category as um, the Judeo-Christian, you know, Christianity, Judaism, and they're all kind of the same but different. But you, you call it a political Islam. You approach it from, from, uh, from that angle. Why do you call it um, political Islam? Well, for a simple reason. I came to my study of Islam late in life in the sense of doing a serious formal study. For instance, I've studied Torah at the Orthodox Synagogue. I've read Buddhist doctrine. I've read uh, quite well up on Buddhist doctrine, actually. Then I've also read Hinduism. So when I started reading on the subject of Islam, I realized, you know, there's something very peculiar here. How much of it is devoted to me, the outsider, whom the Quran calls the Kafir? And so I thought, well, this is very strange because when you, read, when you read Buddhist sutras, you read about how to be a Buddhist. You don't read how bad non-Buddhists are. And everything about the non-Muslim, the Kafir, was bad. So I said, you know, we need to set this part aside because I, as a non-Muslim, I am not part of Islam. So therefore, but there is a part of Islam that impacts me. So I call political Islam the part of Islam that impacts me. The religion of Islam is what you do to go to heaven and hell, and go to heaven and avoid hell. And I have no interest in that at all. Okay, interesting. It could be a, a surprise to a lot of people that it isn't as black and white as just being a, a religion, and, and it's as simple as that. And um, you know, let's look at the. Um, I suppose the core of it is the books of, of Islam and um, and the life of Muhammad, of course. Um, so, can you give us an overview of the um, Islamic literature involved here, and then the Quran itself? Okay. Well, let's start with what most people think that Islam is a religion based on the Quran. But there's something very strange about the Quran. There are five pillars in in Quran, and you do not instruction anywhere in the Quran on how to do those five pillars. Well, if the essence of being a Muslim is the five pillars, where do we find this information? Very simple. There are over a hundred mentions in the Quran which says the Muhammad is the perfect human being and that if you want to lead a good spiritual life, you must imitate Muhammad in every word and deed. And it turns out we have a huge amount that's known about Muhammad. We have the Sarah, his life, which is an, it's not just a biography. Remember, he is the perfect human being, so what you read about in his life is what you're supposed to do. So we have here then the door of the Quran opens up and behind it we have the Hadith, which are Muhammad's traditions, things he said and did. And then we have the Sirah, his life, biography, which by the way is an incredible read. It's a great novel. Even if it weren't, it, Muslims presume it's true, but I'm, when I say it's a great novel, that, let's not use that word, it is a great story. 
I see. Okay, interesting. And uh, most people will just, uh, they've heard of the Quran so much, but not about the others. Um, so that's not really common knowledge. And um, would you say, um, oh, sorry, I'm looking at my questions here. Um, if, if we, what, what's kind of outstanding about it if we compare Islam to um, Christianity and Judaism? What's the outstanding thing about it when you compare it to the other two uh, main Judeo-Christian religions? One simple fact, the golden rule. It turns out that all religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, and Judaism have some form of what I call the golden rule. Some version of be a good neighbor, do unto others, you would have them do unto you. So seeing the person we're interacting with as an equal to us. In Islam, there is no golden rule. There are two sets of ethics. There's one set of ethics for the Muslim. Every Muslim is a brother and a sister. And then you have the ethics that are not devoted to the kafir, which is a very different ethic. For instance, jihad can be practiced against the kafir. So with Islam, we have ethical dualism, and that is its critical th difference. Because in Christianity, Buddhism, and all these others, we have ethical unit. We have a unitary ethic. All people are to be treated equal. So that's what I say. The biggest difference is is an ethical difference. I see, and. Um well, you mentioned the concept of um, jihad there, and it's not um, a modern thing, of course. Anyone who knows their history, they know that, you know, since the Crusades, maybe, or maybe before that even, I'm not sure, the, the, uh, the, there's a long history of jihad here. It's not a, a, something that just popped up with ISIS. So what, what is this concept and where did it um, originate? Well, jihad, of course, is, does not mean holy war. Set that aside. The word for war in Arabic is harb, H-A-R-B. So what we have here is, is we have the fact that we have an, jihad means effort. So there are different forms of jihad. There's jihad of the pen, writing, jihad of speech, jihad of the sword, and jihad of money. So there are different forms of jihad. And we need to understand these and like I say, we need to understand it does not necessarily mean war at all. There is a form of jihad, jihad of the sword, that's like war, but the others are just, could be, say, uh, a talk about Islam at a school could be considered jihad because it is pressing against the kafir, the non-Muslim. Interesting. So anything that kind of forwards the, the, um, the uh, Islam itself is, is kind of part of the concept of jihad. Correct. Okay. And... Um, when we look at history then, um, again, which many people neglect, and that's where we should get our best lessons is from history, um, what examples have we got of situations where um, um, Islam has kind of um, altered an area from being Christian or a different religion into being fully Islamic? Let's start with Muhammad. Muhammad committed 95 acts of jihad in the last nine years of his life. Now let's talk about why that's important. Muhammad had two separate careers. His early career was a preacher, and he preached the doctrine of Islam for 13 years and gained 150 followers. That's about 10 a year. He then went to Medina, where he became a politician and a jihadist, and when he died, every Arab on the peninsula was a Muslim. So the jihad business was what brought success, and we need to understand that. Now let's step back from Muhammad and look at history. I seem to have been the first person who ever asked this question. How many people have died in jihad over 1,400 years? And here are the numbers I get. Now, these are rough numbers. We have 60 million Christians, 80 million Hindus, 10 million Buddhists, and 120 million Africans. That's 270 million who have been killed over the process of jihad over 1,400 years. This is a massive number. Now, here's the question. Why is it that I'm the first person who's asked this question? That's bizarre, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and um, of course we're, we're going to get into the political um, correctness and stuff like that nowadays. So many top topics are becoming taboo that you can't even discuss anything, even if it's historical fact, and it's something that actually uh, happened not just once but but many many times. And um, when we look at say, of course, you know, me being based in Europe. Um, there is the massive cultural uh, changes, the multiculturalism and things like that. And um, so what is the, um, the Islamic doctrine of migration or the, the law of saturation, as you've called it? Right. Hijra is the name for Islamic migration. Here's how important it is. In the West, we keep uh, up with the centuries and the years based on the life of Christ. It's, we don't use that term anymore, but it's before the common era and then common era. 
That is, it's based on the birth of Christ. Now you would think that in Islam, if they were going to create their own calendar, they would use something like, oh, the night of the first revelation of the Quran. That seems like a good place to start. Or maybe the birth of Muhammad. But no, the Islamic calendar starts with the migration from Mecca to Medina. Why? I just told you earlier, because that's what brought them overwhelming success. So the Hijra is so important that is the Islamic calendar is based on it. And the purpose of Hijra is to, <clears throat> is the perp, let me restart there. The purpose of Hijra is to bring Islam to the country you're moving to. So the Hijra is a subtle form of jihad. The concept of uh, that's mentioned um, many times to those who've analyzed, uh, analyzed um, Islam is the concept of the tipping point or the kind of maybe this certain um, level at which the, the kind of spread of migration affects things. Where did this idea come from? Well, it comes from an observation. Let's step back and look at the country we now call Turkey, which used to be called Asia Minor. And it was part of the Byzantine Empire. It used to be a Christian nation. Islam invaded, and then over a period of centuries, it became completely Islamic. Today, I think I read a figure that 99.7 of all Turks are Muslim, which leaves the remainder for Christian. And how did this happen? Over a very long, slow period of time. What happens is, is once the Muslims move in, they start asserting their dominance over things that are social. For instance, there's pressure, I don't know this for a fact, but I bet you there's pressure in Ireland for the schools to start serving halal meals. Uh, yeah, so, or getting there, yeah. Or, okay, so the point is, is Islam pushes forward on all fronts. Let me s describe this. This is a civilizational war. Muhammad was the greatest genius about war who ever lived. Who kills anybody today for Caesar? Alexander the Great, Napoleon, nobody. But someone died today because of Muhammad. And Muhammad's genius about war was, is to declare war on, the, on say, what we would call fashion and clothing, food, education. There's no aspect of being a human being that is not covered in, in Islam because Islam is a complete way of life. And so it covers everything and it has their way of doing things. And once the Hijrist process starts and more and more Muslims start coming in, they demand more and more political rule for themselves. For instance, in America, we see that they form self-formed ghettos. And in those ghettos, they begin to elect Muslim uh, political leaders. And once that starts happening, the Kafir will never be elected in that range again. It's, it's interesting um, and uh, it makes sense to me, but it's also hilarious when you compare it to some of the um, the multicultural ideas and the political left saying that um, everything's going to be lovely and fine. Everything's going to, it will work out. Um, integration is a good thing and it's really, really possible. Well, what, what do you say to that argument to people who think that you can uh, Islam can integrate into an area on a large scale and, and, and not dominate? Show me the history. Let's go back to Turkey. At first, Islam was small, but once it reaches a certain point, after that, after that point, the process will become completely one of Islamification that is not in history. The only way to stop this Islamification process is with war. We saw this in the Balkans and we saw this in Spain. It took 700 years for the Spaniards to drive the Muslims out. So if you don't use force, once Islam starts and reaches this tipping point, which is about 10%, you will discover that it is unstoppable without force. Wow. Um, it's uh, certainly uh, a lot more of a critical situation than those in the politically uh, correct camp would uh, would like to admit, of course, uh, again, because they don't really focus on, on uh, the hist historical side of things. And um, Here, Can I explain why? Yep. They do not need to focus on history because for the left, this idea which they're putting out today has never been really manifested ex except in their mind. A utopian has no need for history because his idea is to be judged on its beauty because these leftists of today are the first people who've truly understood leftist politics. And so therefore there's no history that they need to reference. The beauty of the idea is enough. I see. History doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. That's the, the difference between ideology and um, reality. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and history is part of the past uh, reality. And, you know, with, with, of course, one of the central issues here is the concept of um, of Sharia law. Now, now, some have heard of this, but uh, what, where did this originate and uh, how, does it, how does it operate exactly? Well, 
If Islam is a separate society and a complete civilization, it needs its own set of laws. Wouldn't this make sense? And as a matter of fact, the Quran insists that this is true and so does Muhammad. Once Islam moves in, everything needs to be judged on the basis of Quran and Sirah and Hadith, or another way of putting it is Quran and Sunnah, S-U-N-N-A. Sunnah is simply what Muhammad said and did as the perfect example. So that's what we need to be looking at is the divine life of Muhammad and he will, he will show us how to guide in all things. And one of those things is the Sharia. Now, when you ask Muslims about Sharia, they say, oh, it's just how we practice our religion. And there is truth to that. About If you take a text such as the Reliance of the Traveler, you'll discover that indeed part of the Sharia is about religion, about a quarter of it. What's the other three quarter about? Well, how wills are to be written, how justice is to be served, and there's a whole codification of justice. And one of the most interesting things about the Sharia is, is that under the Sharia, the place for the non-Muslim is as a demi. A demi is one who does not have any political rights and can practice their religion in, this, in, in the home, but not in public. So the demi is a second-rate, second-class citizen, and that's who we are in the Sharia. So the Sharia that we need to be concerned about is not the Sharia of how many times we pray a day, and that is included. There's a great detail about prayer in the Sharia, but that is not important to you and me. Let, me. let me do a sidebar, by the way, here about the subtleness of politics and religion. We see that in the United States, the same thing is beginning to happen as happened in Europe, which is the Muslims will commandeer the street for prayer. Have you, have you ever noticed that in Europe? Now you would say, well, this is religious. The prayer is religious. Commandeering the street is a political action. Do you follow me? I'll bet you if I come to your hometown and you and I go out to get another half a dozen friends there with us and we go out and we start blocking the roads, I bet we'll meet some policemen in Ireland who don't have a sense of humor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. But if you're a Muslim and want to blockade the street, well, we have to be tolerant. Why do we have to tolerate people blocking the streets? I don't care if they pray or not. That's not of any interest of mine at all. But why do they commandeer public places to do it? Simple. It is a political action and an assertion of power. Interesting. And uh, yeah, there's uh, recently there was a, a, a situation in Ireland because there was an Irish woman who was a former member of the Irish Defence Forces. She was actually in the Air Corps, I believe. And she um, ended up in Syria, I think, or somewhere in the Middle East and became radicalised. So uh, there's been a, some media attention recently. The Irish Prime Minister, Leo Varadkar, um, said there's no problem with bringing her back into the country. So there's been a slight debate. You have the the Islamic community here um, trying to distance themselves from from ISIS and and the um, the um, the terrorist kind of element, and then there was indeed a protest in the streets. And you're right, you know there is a because of the politically correct narrative here. It's kind of um, the state has to just constantly accommodate those from the outside with very different um, political ideologies. And this is only beginning. There will be much more of this. Trust me. There is no end to Sharia until it's 100%. And that is, in, as we go through the future for, of Ireland, unless something is done about Islam, in a few centuries, there'll be no trace of anything that was Christian in Ireland or any, its history will disappear as well. And it will be replaced by an Islamic history. Let me give you an example of that. If you're a Pakistani and want to study history, it starts with the invasion of Islam. Pakistani history starts with that. There was no history before that is the official point of view because the history before that is Jahiliya. It is, it is without Allah and it is offensive to Islam. And so therefore, why would we want to bring this up again? We need to destroy all the history of, this, of the Ireland. Just as an example. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting as well that the, um, the, the things seem to be changing in waves. So in Ireland, um, the, the idea of Irish, Irishness and Irish culture, and of course the Catholic Church has been kind of pushed aside, marginalised, attacked by the state, attacked by the media, and that lays the foundations to make it easier for a new ideology to come in. Exactly. Let me ask you this. Have they started telling the Irish peoples that if you love Ireland and its history, that that's a form of white supremacy? <laughs> yeah, things are getting like that, yeah. Figures, that's what they tell us here. Yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Southerner, and if I love the Southern part of America, then I'm a white racist, a white nationalist, and that is the way it's said. But if a Muslim loves their history, oh, that's wonderful diversity. 
but my history it doesn't belong in any part of diversity. So notice that the left and the Muslims agree on the subject of Irish history. It needs to go away. I see. Okay, so there is some sort of a an unholy alliance there. <laughs> there is somewhat. Uh, you need to destroy the competition before you move in and replace it. And exactly. The, as well with, with Sharia law, of course, like, as you pointed out, uh, you know, some people will will say Muslims will say it's more religious thing, but it's clearly a socio political thing as well. Exactly. Like you said, that's it's more about that than anything else. And of course, with a lot of Western countries, we already have our own common law systems that comes from you know the Greeks or the Roman times. Where we got it from the British, and that's where they got it from. And you know, Sharia. I mean, are these compatible at all? Is there any scenario where Sharia can operate and common law at the same time? All right, let's look at this. Your common law and our law here in America is made by whom? Human beings. Sharia law comes from God. Now then, which is the better law? The human law or the God's law? Well, it's really obvious, isn't it? God's law should be supreme. Why should human law have any existence at all? because the complete system of government is laid out in the Sharia, so there is no need for any modern politics. We simply need to follow the Sharia. So in the United States, we have something called the Constitution. In Article 6 of the Constitution, it says the Constitution, this document, is the highest law of the land. But Sharia says, oh, not so fast. Sharia is the highest law of the universe because it is God's law. So therefore, we have this, which. Do you see any compatibility here? For instance, let me ask you this. How would you change or reform Sharia? Well, how do you do that? The Quran is perfect, unalterable. The life of Muhammad is already over and done. It's fixed. So how do you do anything about it? How do you reform Sharia? You can't because the Sharia is based on the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith, or the Quran and the Sunnah of Muhammad. So it's not, this is very clear. By the way, could we go back to a word you used, which we passed over, which was called radical? Someone was radicalized? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. What do we mean by that word? What do we mean by the term radicalized? <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is what the media says. They, they say that it means a, um, a form of something that's quite extreme, I suppose. Now, what is extreme? Let's go back to something here. What defines normal in Islam? The Quran and the Sunnah Muhammad. Those define Islam, and therefore they define its normalcy, if you will. That is, they describe its boundaries, what all it includes. And what does that include? Remember, Muhammad was involved in 95 acts of jihad in the last nine years of his life. This includes torture deaths, enslavement, uh, crucifixions, uh, torture, traitors, spies, counter-spies. So this is the nature of Islamic political doctrine. So if you're practicing Islamic political doctrine, as laid out in the Quran and the Sunnah Muhammad, how can that be radical? That is normal. Do you, do you follow me here? Now here, let me explain to you why this is not so clear to people. Because there are two Islams, there are two Qurans. Remember I told you that Muhammad's career, a preacher for 13 years and converting 150? The Quran during that period of time is pure religion and there is no jihad and there's no death. But remember how that wasn't successful. So when he moved to Medina where he became a jihadist, he had overwhelming success. And so therefore, the jihad is normal for success. It is not extreme, it is not radical. If Muhammad did it, it defines normalcy. It's very simple. But when we use extreme, we think about, oh, well, if you rape women because of whatever, that's extreme. No, the Quran says that can be done. It says over in several verses that those, you can have sex with those whom your right arm possesses. And who is that? Women who are your captives. So therefore, rape of Kafir women is not extreme. It is laid out in the Quran, and Muhammad and his companions did it as well. So we have to decide, if we want to use the term radical, we need to say, which yards, which measuring tool are you using? And I use the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith, and nothing that Islamic State did, not one thing, was extreme or radical. It all was patterned on Muhammad's life. It's very clear. Interesting, um, yeah, because I know you've mentioned this in your, in your speeches and, and in your interviews that people, um, well, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but you're talking about how you know they don't follow our ethical way of looking at things. Correct. So, so the, the term extreme comes from our perception of, of, of what's moral, isn't it? It's extreme to us, but it is not extreme to the doctrine. 
Okay. And speaking of the, um, you know, the the it's often um, talked about the uh, the different culture in Islamic countries and how women have a different um, status in society. Is it really kind of as a, uh, I was going to say extreme. Is it really as um, um, bad for women as people say it is? And and is that a cultural thing that that's a recent thing, or again, does it come from the religious texts? It all comes from the religious text. I, I sell a small book called The Islamic Doctrine of Women, and it lays it all out very clearly. Women are always second-class citizens. They're basically, the, as a child, she's under the reign of her father and her brothers. When, when she's married, she's under the, the ruling of her husband. A Muslim woman is always has a man who is over her. And so... For instance, there's Quran verse in Surah 4, which is the uh, chapter of women, in which it is said that if women do not obey, you can beat them. So therefore, if a Muslim man is to beat his wife, is that against the law? Well, in America it is, but in Sharia it is not. So therefore, we see that we have to look at women through the eyes of Sharia. And it's simply, I have two daughters, and it would break my heart to see them raised in an Islamic society because they're free-spirited people who are intelligent, they're capable of movement on their own, and they don't need a man to rubber stamp what they do. But in Islam, they would have to have that. So, no, I do not care for the way that women are treated in Islam. Yeah, it's, um, it's, and it's, it's kind of a shame that, again, you know, we have to deal with the elephant in the room. This multicultural, um, politically correct experiment uh, is in, these, in this fantasy land and they're, um, they are actually part of something that actually contradicts other, other things that they say they stand for. So, for example, the, the, politically, uh, sorry, the politically correct le- left um, politically left groups in places like Germany and Sweden have been instrumental in encouraging mass migration. Um, which actually impacts on the rights of women, which is something else that they say that they stand for. And there's been several examples in Sweden and in Germany where there have been rapes because of this cultural clash because of the migrants. And um, the feminist groups have been kind of silent because they are not allowed to criticize Islam. This is a tragedy. I hear anecdotal stories in Germany, for instance, women will will no longer go out at night on their own. And this used to be they would go out on their own at night and not even think about it. And now then it's become too fearful. You know, we see the immigration results are being suppressed in the news. That is, it, let me give you an example. I have a group in Europe and we had a German Facebook page. And what we did was we simply put up two graphs. One was the increasing crime and the other was the increasing uh, migration. And we just asked the question, is there any correlation or cause and effect here? our Facebook page was taken down. It turns out that violated their, I don't know, rights of something. Anyway, it was considered bigotry or something, and so it was taken down. What we keep hearing is, and I know this to be true, is that we do not have free and open discussion in our news in America anymore. If you, if you want to discuss what is wrong with Islam, then you're a racist, hater, bigot, Islamophobe. And by the way, the left will not. Th- the left thinks that they can be the hammer in Islam, the aim anvil, and they'll tear down our culture both in Europe and America and create a beautiful utopia. Remember, I talked earlier about how the left has no need of history because it's utopian. If they had a need for history, they would know that in Iran, it was the left, the Tudor party, who brought Khomeini to power, not the not the mullahs. They worked with the mullahs to bring them in. Five days after Khomeini came to power in Iran, he issued death warrants for all the Tudor party, the leftist leaders. So the left thinks that they can be good buddies with Islam. And they will be good buddies with Islam for as long as Islam needs them. When Islam no longer needs them, they'll go down the drain. Yeah, there's uh, that uh, naivete always um, will, uh, if people buy into it or they they fall victim of it, it will get them back in the end. And um, it reminds me of that concept, I'm I'm sure you've heard of of, of, um, Islamo-communism, the the idea of of the two kind of being similar in some ways that just like communism, uh, where, where places where that's taken hold, those who start the revolutions in the beginning, the useful idiots are eventually taken out by the monster that they in, invited in. It's a fascinating correlation between the two. 
Very much so. Oh, one has to only look at both the Russian Revolution and the French Revolution. By the way, the American Revolution was unusual here. I'm going to be a nationalist, a white nationalist here. Our creed in a nation was not followed by a bloodbath. It's unique. I see. Yeah, interesting, interesting point. And about the... Um um, we, we brought up the, of, of course, the, the the social impact of Islam and, and the relationship with uh, the attitude towards women. Um, why is it that we always see, especially in the politically correct uh, mainstream media, they often show trying to, to peddle and promote the idea that Islam is fine and it's a great idea for Western Europe and they often use Western women as examples and I've no doubt some of them are actors, but some are also genuine people too, of course, many of them. Why do you think that um, a Western woman would, would buy into a culture like that if it doesn't really match the Western uh, way of living? You know, I don't understand it at all. They see a little that they want to see and the rest they just block out of their vision. I, I do not understand how any woman who considers herself free at all well, actually, I have, I've asked this question more than once. Why do some Western women marry Muslims? And I have an answer for that. Number one, they want a husband. In the United States, and I see the same is true in Europe, is that people want to have sex, they want to have affairs, but they don't want to have a family. And so as a result, if you're a woman who wants a husband who will go out and earn a job and bring home the money and wants kids, marry a Muslim man. You will get that. Islam demands, basically, that all Muslims marry and have children. So the other thing here is true as well. In the America, we have what I call the feminization of the American male. That is, and more and more we see male who are considered not very masculine. If you're a woman who wants a masculine man laden with testosterone, go down to the mosque, you'll find them. A whole room full of them. So there are some reasons for women to be attracted to Islam. They can get a husband, and they want a, what in America we call a manly man. Now, somebody's going to object to all this, I'm sure, but they reject, object to just about everything else I say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's all right. Um, you, you know, the other side of the... It kind, of, it kind of makes sense, and it is true that this isn't just one issue. The Islamification of the West is part of a broader uh, picture here. There's a holder, a big... Uh, a bigger um, movement going on and the feminization of Western men is obviously part of that because as we talked about earlier, when you remove one thing, something else steps into the vacuum and um, women, like, you know, most women anyway, want some sort of masculinity. So it does make sense, but, um, you know, you can't control the free will of people and Western women, if they want to go down that road, that's fine, but it might get them back later just, just because you're attracted to someone and you want to get into a situation um, with them doesn't mean it's good for you long term down the line. Here's an interesting statistic. In America, it's considered it's that two out of three people who convert to Islam leave it within five years. So many don't stay. Right, for that, for that kind of reason. It's not what they thought it was going to be. It's not what they thought it was going to be. They don't like it as much as they thought they would. Here's another interesting statistic. Someone did a study of those who call themselves Muslims in America. 20% of them do not believe in Allah, the Quran, or Muhammad at all. They simply don't have anything to active participation in Islam, but since they're a member of a larger community which is very centered on Islam, they don't talk about it. So it's estimated that one Muslim in five in America is not really a practicing Muslim at all and doesn't believe any of the business. I, I bring you these facts because people sometimes think, well, anyway, I just find them interesting statistical facts. Well, that, that's probably the difference between, I suppose, relig uh, religious and secular Muslims, just like in other religious faiths. People can say that they are a you know, Christian or a Jew or a Muslim, and that doesn't mean they're exactly like all the other ones. It depends on how you, you interpret the doctrine, how much knowledge you have about the religion, and how you let it impact on your life, basically. So there's, there's different levels, isn't there? And also, I'm sure the counter-arguments, the politically correct types who listen to our conversation now would say things like... Um, Oh, you know, you're stereotyping a whole over a billion people here. Not all Muslims want to um, uh, create jihad, and that, I think that's why you you always say that you you know in your speeches and in your interviews you always say I don't talk about Muslims. I talk about the ide ideology. Exactly, and see the beauty of that is is I can hold it in my hand and it says what it says, and we can both agree on it. I call the study of Muslims Muslimology. That is, it's a study of what Muslims think and say. 
which is a sociological concept, which I have no objection to, but it should not be confused with Islam. Islam is a doctrine found in the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith. Now, how you practice that as a Muslim, that's an entirely another question. I don't even get involved in that at all. Interesting, because as well, I heard the point raised that if you have over like 1.2 billion or is it 1.8 billion Muslims, I'm not sure, um, who um, even even a, even a kind of a, a quarter of that or 10% of that is still quite a lot. If only 10% of that number follows the, the Quran and the Seer and the Hadith to the letter, that's still a high amount of people who are um, not radicalized following the, the doctrine to, to, the, to the letter. This is true. This is true. So it's Islam we need to study. We don't need to study Muslims other than if we, there's a Muslim at work. I, I always encourage people to discuss Islam with Muslims. Most of them, it's, they love to talk about it. So, but we need to distinguish between the doctrine and the people. I leave the people alone. Who knows what, I mean, well, there's another thing I want to mention here though. You threw in the term radical or something about the effect of Islam on a society. There, people say, well, you know, not all Muslims want Sharia, not all Muslims practice jihad. Let's take that one phrase, not all Muslims practice jihad. In the United States, we fought a war in the Second World War in which we fought on the Pacific Front and the European Front. This was a nation that was at war as hard as it could go. And yet only 10% of the people were actually in the military. So 90% of the people in America in the middle of an all-out war were not part of the military. So were we at war? Well, yes, we were. It turns out you don't need everybody going to war at once. All you need is a society that supports it. So we need to understand here that if not all Muslims practice something, that's still enough to be cause trouble. Similar studies have been shown that in high crime neighborhoods in America, only 90% of the people, only 10% of the people in the high crime area are criminals. The other 90% are not. And yet you would not want to be caught in that neighborhood at night because it's dangerous. But Bill, only 90%, only 10% of the people believe in crime. 10% is enough to ruin your life. The, the, um, uh, as well, well, my take on the whole, the, the Islamification of Western Europe, which is kind of, is really what's happening through sheer numbers. Um, if there was some sort of a different system, even where, um, you know, Sharia law wasn't able to take hold. And I, I sound like I'm being uh, interested in a utopia here, but, um, <laughs> you know, maybe maybe there's a way it would be possible if you if you took certain parts out of it, if the numbers of Muslims was much lower and they, were, they weren't Muslims who were 100% engaged with the texts and who wanted to integrate, maybe it would work. But the more numbers you bring in, that that 10% starts to come into play then. So if you bring in a million um, Muslims into Europe and for argument's sake, 99% of them um, aren't aren't determined and follow the text, you've still got that 1% who do make the impact and that's what we should be worried about. Exactly. And in any argument, let's, let's if you're, a, I'm going to use the term, if you're a Muslim who believes in jihad and you're talking to another Muslim who does not, you have the weight of doctrine on your side. That is, the peaceful Muslim at work and talking to you may be all lovey-dovey, but when he's talking to another Muslim, he cannot say Muhammad was not a jihadist. Okay, he can't say that. So the Muslim who practices the full Islam has it all over the so-called moderate Muslim who does not have anything except his own will. I don't want to follow that. By the way, when Muslims say something like, I don't follow that, I say, well, will you condemn it? Because you'll find sometimes that Muslims want to say, well, I don't follow the, uh, I don't have sex slaves. I don't follow that. All right, you don't, and I'm glad you don't. But will you condemn Muhammad for having sex slaves? Well, now then you're talking about a very different question. Do you follow me here? You may not practice it, but will you condemn Muhammad for practicing it? Or you may not practice it, but will you condemn the Quran for saying you can beat your wife? You say you don't beat your wife, but will you condemn the Quran for saying you can? There's a very difference here, a big difference between saying, well, I don't do it, and then me asking you to condemn it. Because the Muslim will not condemn the Quran and they will not condemn Muhammad. They can't do that or they're an apostate. I see. Do you see the difference in the question? Yeah, and, and they're, they're not equal. So the opinions of a Muslim who is, who is very, follows the text to the letter and one who isn't so passionate about it, they're not equal because one will dominate the other. By the way, the Quran goes further to say their inequality is even in heaven. Every Muslim, when they die, believes they will suffer what's called the punishment of the grave, 
and then uh, Judgment Day, whether they go to heaven or hell. The jihadist who's killed in jihad does not have punishment of the grave and does not, is not judged on Judgment Day. He goes directly to the seventh heaven now. So the Quran itself says that the peaceful Muslim is not equal to the jihadi Muslim. The Quran it says it itself. Okay, and and that that's the one that wins, and then you've got the exactly you have the um, the imams, I think, and the the mosques and all of that um, as part of the structure, and then you have um, people getting Muslims getting involved in politics. These are the ones who are more ideologically motivated, and their their opinions kind of will dominate the quiet ones. You know exactly. It's kind of like. It's, it's like, probably like, say, for example, you look at Ireland right now, it, I can see parallels between that dynamic and what happens here when it comes to, you know, the the political um, dynamic of, le of left and right politics, that the left is dominant, the media is dominant, all the activist groups, they're the dominant ones. They're not, there's not more of them. They're just noisier and they're more motivated. It's, can you see the correlation there? Uh, it's funny, I'm releasing a video in the morning, it's called Why We Are Losing, and that's one of the things I talk about is, is that we're losing because we don't show up to protest. We don't show up to have, I was part of the civil rights movement in America, and one of the things we did was we had protest. We had uh, massive, mass civil disobedience. That is, in those days, if, you, if a black man couldn't eat at a particular restaurant, if you flood the restaurant with, with both whites and blacks who are demonstrating, the restaurant has to shut down. So therefore, this is called uh, mass civil disobedience. That is, we're disobeying the law, but we have so many of us that they can't arrest us all. So therefore, we need to develop this concept of a radical free speech in which we get together as a group and we do something. If we did it as an individual, we'd be arrested. But if there's a thousand of us that commit some act of blasphemy, the cops can't arrest a thousand people. So what I'm saying is, is the video that I'm putting out is, is that we need to start becoming politically active ourselves and we have to stop believing that somehow or another it's just gonna all work out okay. That's not really strategic planning. It's all gonna work out. No, 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 we need to have plans and we don't have plans. We have plans, I say we need to develop the mind of war and leave the mind of worry. Worrying is never gonna solve our problems. Now when I use the term war, I'm not talking about bombs, I'm not talking about guns, I'm talking about ideological war, the war of ideas. Yeah, this is not the time for people to fall asleep and be too nice because your enemy will, will not be nice to you. And um, looking, looking at, again, to go back to the texts, how does Islamic ideology uh, instruct Muslims to deal with people who are nice to them? The, the Kafir, the non-Muslim, does it say to reciprocate with kindness and hospitality or? No, it does not. It, the Kafir is to be used for your own purposes. Whatever it takes to do that is what he can be used. Because the Quran is very clear on the fact that the Kafir is despised by Allah, hated by Allah, Allah plots against the Kafir, Kafir, and Allah clearly says that jihad can be practiced against the Kafir. So you can be as nice as you want to be, but you will never change the doctrine. If the person, there's a term created here in America called sudden jihad syndrome. And it works like this. You have some Muslim, he lives next door as a neighbor. He's a nice guy. He waves at you, he uh, whatever, he's a very friendly person. And then lo and behold, you discover a year and a half later that he's joined ISIS. Or he's gotten a, rented a car and killed some people on the sidewalk by driving over him. And you go, well, he was such a nice guy. We need to understand here that Islam is dualistic. When it's weak, it has one behavior. When it is strong, it has another behavior. So everything about Islam, although it preaches the religion of one, is actually practiced with the number two. That is, there's a peaceful Islam in the sense of if you practice the, the Islam in, in Mecca, the early Quran, there is no jihad. But if you practice the full Islam, then it is included. So we need to understand here that Islam always has two faces it can present you, and nice is one of those faces. But that nothing does nothing changes. They may be as nice as he wants to be, but if he ever wants to execute an ethical option that's different, that is available to him. There's something you brought up before in one of your lectures. I think it's um, the concept of of tying into that about that being that duality. Um, it's the concept of takia. I think. Um, mm -hmm. uh, what what does this concept mean exactly? Well, <laughs> 
when you study Islamic doctrine, you run across some incredible concepts. One of the concepts you run across is sacred hate. Really? Sacred hate, okay. So there's also sacred lies, sacred deception. Allah says, I am the greatest of deceivers. Let that rest on your mind a moment there. Allah says, I am the best of deceivers. I'm the best of plotters and schemers. I mean, this is their concept of the divine. So now then, if God can deceive you, why can't a Muslim deceive you? Well, he can, but only under one condition. He's not supposed to lie to you about something personally. He can only lie to you if it advances Islam. So therefore, if you have a Muslim who's trying to sell you a used car, he shouldn't lie to you about the car, but it is okay to lie to you about Islam. So it doesn't mean you're a liar all the time. It just says if, it's, if it is advantageous to lie, then you, a Muslim may lie to press forward with Islam. Wow. Yeah. So th this sacred hate and sacred deception, these are concepts that I don't know about in other religions. The um, One of the often, the uh, um, uh, from, again, from the politically correct camps or even just from people in general who, who aren't seeing the bigger picture and who aren't seeing the um, possible consequences of, of Islam here is that they... Um, um, they, they talk about the dynamic of what's happening in the Middle East and it's often brought up about Israel and the, um, the, the you know, the interference of NATO in those areas. Um, have you dealt with that kind of argument before where people say it's the actions of NATO that's creating Islamic terrorism and not the, the beliefs? What I notice is the people who want to advance that argument don't want to talk about the doctrine of Islam. So what I say to such a person, let's say we're at a party and I meet you and you're you're advancing this theory that it's American foreign policy that's the problem. I go, okay, let's examine what, what do you think is happening here? Okay, good, you think that's what's happening? How can we judge this based on what Muhammad did and said and what Allah says in the Quran? Therefore, just, I'm more than willing to sit down and discuss with you what you think it's political science and foreign policy, but I want you to listen to my discussion as well. So while I'm perfectly willing to listen to your arguments about its history and foreign policy, but will you listen to my arguments? But what I find is those who want to hold the position that it's foreign policy or political science do not want me to discuss my point of view. That is, it's okay for them to say what it is, but it's not okay for me to say I don't think so. Once again, we get into this censorship, which is, I'm a, I'm a radical free speecher, so I object to all forms of censorship censorship including hate speech laws I see okay so that that's uh, that's interesting that um uh, without without the component of understanding Islam itself and where it comes from it, some someone who has that that um, that mindset and they're looking at what's happening and the political correct media is telling them that oh well you know the reason why there's terrorism in western Europe and there's these you know the bomb attacks the gun attacks the people driving trucks down down uh, shopping streets in, in Sweden and in other countries and I think one happened in Canada as well um, um, the politically correct contingent and, and the left will say uh, oh it's the actions of NATO that's doing it it's splinter groups but what you're saying is that's actually people who are just following the text to, to the exactly. letter by the way these people may be able to explain things in this century but why do they explain the previous 1300 years right huh that is, Islam is doing the same thing today it did 1,400 years ago. So nothing changes over 1,400 years, but now then all of a sudden you want to discuss about American foreign policy or NATO. I say we need to discuss all 1,400 years, including NATO. But remember, Islam has killed 270 million non-believers over 1,400 years, and most of those years were before modern Europe. Right, okay. They can't explain that. They can't explain the history. And once again, I find the left doesn't know any history. They don't need history because their ideas are so beautiful they've never been expressed this way before. Yeah, that's uh, well, that's the key component is that none of this is particularly new. And um, as well, it doesn't change the fact that regardless, even if you remove the terrorist component and ISIS and all of that, it doesn't change what we were talking about, which is that culturally it's not 
compatible with, with Western Europe, and um, I don't think anything's really going to um, going to kind of change that. Because my, my my brief and what I'm mostly concerned about, of course, is the impact of of Islam on Western Europe, including places like Ireland. And we have the the incident I mentioned earlier with the, involving the Prime Minister and the um, the woman who who became radicalised and, and ended up in in Syria. But then there's also um, a big mosque went in uh, was created in Dublin. Um, a while back, and um, the numbers keep increasing here. So that's the ro- the point of these interviews is to raise awareness about which direction this is all heading in. I think it's really important. I think it's critical for the very existence of our civilization. When I say our civilization, what I base this on is an ethical cornerstone of the golden rule: do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And the other is the intellectual basis of critical thought, fact-based reasoning. Islam does not use fact-based reasoning. It uses instead the rule that all all reasoning must correlate with the Quran and the Sunnah of Muhammad. That is, you can think or say anything you want as long as it does not contradict the Quran or Muhammad. Well, that's authoritarian reasoning. It is not critical thought and fact-based reasoning. But what we're seeing here is, is that the American, well, the American and European left is beginning to insist that no, no reasoning is allowed if it contradicts what we say as well. So the left is beginning to mimic now Islam in their own sense. Well, there's there's so, there's so many aspects to this, and um, uh, you know, it's it's been great talking to you. It's been very educational as well. I knew some of the some of the basics here, but I, I, that's why I love talking to specialists, people who've spent the time to go into detail about things, because it's um it's a great source of knowledge that that we need right now. It's certainly not being spoken about in the mainstream media, and unfortunately, um, because of that, many people are they're walking into a trap, and then political correctness does the rest, really. But um, well, just yeah, in conclusion here anyway, Doctor, uh, thanks very much for your time and it's been a real pleasure. I always enjoy talking about my favourite subject. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah um, well, we, um, that's been great anyway and um, I, I will uh, enjoy uh, working on this one, editing and putting the word out there and just um, increasing people's knowledge about this very important subject of political Islam. Well, thank you for having the courage to even lead this discussion. You're welcome. Uh, Dr. Dr. Bill Warner of Political Islam, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for watching Resolving Reality. That was my conversation with Dr. Bill Warner of the website politicalislam.com. Also check out Dr. Warner's YouTube channel and the links for those will be down below in the description. Support Resolving Reality on YouTube, share those videos and subscribe, and have a listen to the Resolving Reality radio episodes as well. For all our podcasts and platforms, visit our website, resolvingreality.com. So once again, thanks for watching. Until next time, and enjoy Resolving Reality.